Hi, my name is Yasmin Tarehi, and this is Gateways to Awakening, where we host one-on-one conversations with leading experts in wellness and spirituality. On this show, we'll be featuring our guest, Dr. Shauna Shapiro, who I first learned about through her TED Talk, Good Morning, I Love You, and also through our mutual friend, Nicole Patrice. Dr. Shauna Shapiro is a professor at Santa Clara University. She's a best-selling author and internationally recognized expert in mindfulness and compassion. She's been an invited speaker for the King of Thailand, the Danish government, Bhutan's Gross National Happiness Summit, the Canadian government and the World Council for Psychotherapy, as well as for Fortune 100 companies, including Google, Cisco Systems, Procter & Gamble, and LinkedIn. And she's published over 150 journal articles. She's co-authored three critically acclaimed books and her most recent book, Good Morning, I Love You, Mindfulness and Self-Compassion, Practices to Rewire the Brain for Calm, Clarity and Joy is available on Amazon and Audible. And we'll actually dive into that book in the conversation. I'm very excited to welcome Dr. Shana Shapiro. And today we're gonna be talking about the power of mindfulness and compassion. Welcome to the show, Shana. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here. So Shauna, to kick it off, can we define what mindfulness is? I think a lot of people have a lot of questions about mindfulness and how it's different from meditation. So can you tell us what does it mean to be mindful? So I'm glad you asked because mindfulness has become so popular. I think it's kind of been diluted. So no one really knows exactly what we mean as we say it. So First of all, the word mindfulness means to see clearly. So all we're trying to do is see clearly what's happening in the present moment. And if we see clearly, then we can respond effectively. So mindfulness is really a way of being, a way of living, a way of perceiving. And meditation is a practice or an exercise that you do to grow mindfulness. So mindfulness and meditation, although they're overlapping, they're distinct. And for me, mindfulness is comprised of three key elements. And in fact, I wrote a paper and a book about this, that there's these three parts. And the first is intention, which is simply knowing why are you paying attention? What's important? What what do you care about? Second is your attention. And this, I believe, is your most valuable resource, your attention. It's learning how to train and stabilize your attention in the present moment so you can see clearly. And if you notice, that's not so easy. For those of you listening, I'm sure your mind has already wandered off, and we've only been speaking for two minutes. But the mind wanders. In fact, research from Harvard shows it wanders 47% of the time. So about half of your life, you're spaced out. You're not present. So the second part of mindfulness is training your attention in the present moment. And then the third element is your attitude. And this is how you pay attention. So paying attention with curiosity, with kindness. Often when we pay attention, we're judging things. I like this, I don't like this. And it clouds our view. So mindfulness is about seeing clearly. So we pay attention with kindness and curiosity, welcoming whatever's here. So that's kind of mindfulness in a nutshell is paying attention with kindness. Mm, that's beautiful. Yeah, I think so many people are in the past or in the in the future and they're not really here in this present moment. And so I love that the second kind of uh, key point about attention and really just being here now. I think that's so important. And so that is 
the what, you know, of mindfulness. I'm wondering if we could talk a little bit about why mindfulness is so important. Yes. Well, I've spent 25 years researching it, so I can definitely tell you its <laughs> benefits. <laughs> mindfulness, you know, I mean, there's kind of big picture benefits and then the more specifics. In terms of specific benefits, mindfulness improves your immune functioning. It decreases stress and reduces cortisol, the stress hormone. It improves happiness and uh, joy in life. It even helps you sleep better. So there's lots of kind of physical, tangible reasons. It also improves cognition, ability to learn, ability to remember, and it improves relationships in terms of relationships with children and parents, relationships with employees, and relationships with with um, partners. And so there's a lot of benefits to mindfulness across many domains. The areas that I'm most interested in right now is what we found is that mindfulness also reduces our biases against race, against age, against gender. So it really allows us to see each other clearly without all our assumptions and filters. And it increases compassion, which is what I believe our world needs most. It increases compassion for others, and it increases compassion for ourselves. So mindfulness has a lot of benefit. And I think for me, the goal is to meet people where they are. So some people I work with are having anxiety problems, and so we work to use mindfulness for that. Other people want to be more creative and innovative in their job, and so we work on that. And so, again, it comes back to your intention. You know, what is what is your purpose? And And that's usually where I start with people is, why are you here? Why do you want to learn about this? Beautiful. And Shauna, I have so many questions. I think, you know, one thing that comes up in the conversation of mindfulness is the logical mind trying to find a solution to solve a problem. So oftentimes some of my smartest friends are the ones who are not able to be mindful and to be present. And I just think it's such an interesting point in culture right now, especially in the West where we've kind of prioritized the mind above all else and the logical mind or the rational mind. And yesterday I was actually having a conversation with a friend who was telling me, so I always get confused um, by how many people don't understand the difference between mindfulness and self-awareness and being intellectual. You know, it's just, it's so interesting how we're so caught up in this, um, you know, in, in the inability to understand what mindfulness is and maybe to not understand what mindfulness and just be it. I'm, I'm wondering mm. if, yeah, I'm wondering if you can speak to that point. Cause I, you know, your background is fascinating. Uh, you sit in a lot of different worlds, you have a PhD, you approach things from a neuroscience perspective. And I'm really interested in your point of view, because I'm sure that you are surrounded by a lot of people who are maybe over-indexing for the intellectual um, mm -hmm. at the expense of the mindful and self-awareness. Yeah. So this, these are really, really important questions. And I think what I'm grateful for in my background is that I don't just have a PhD and I'm not just a scientist, but I also spent many years of my life in monasteries, sitting meditation retreats and moving from what you're talking about, the intellectual mind to the more non-conceptual, where it moves kind of the attention from prioritizing the intellect to prioritizing 
sensation and felt body experience and emotions and intuition. And what mindfulness practice does is it clarifies the mind. So it doesn't just get rid of the intellect. You want that, but it expands it to also include your emotional intelligence and your somatic awareness, your body awareness. And when you were speaking, I I kept thinking of this quote from Einstein. And he says, the consciousness that created the problem is not the consciousness that can solve it, right? The, the way of thinking that got you here is not, you can't think your way out of that. And I think that is our current kind of, we're in a crisis and we're trying to solve huge, complex world problems. And we're going at it with the same mentality that created these problems. And what mindfulness does is creates this radical shift in consciousness where you're fully present and you have access to all these resources, not just the intellect. Wow, that's a really powerful point. Um, I never thought about it that way. And I think, you know, in the same way that I guess like rigorous academic studying could increase your intellectual capacity or, you know, at least improve it, um, consciousness and or mindfulness and meditation probably increase your consciousness. And I'm also curious like how... <laughs> how many levels one can increase their consciousness in the same lifetime? Because I have been grappling with this question, you know, are we born with a set point of consciousness? And since it feels very infinite and exponential, do we um, have a, maybe a threshold for how much we can expand? Because I think shifting your perspective also has limits, right? You know, we are human. We have, we're flawed creatures. You know, these, these are difficult questions. So I'm just curious if, if you have any thoughts or commentary on that. Um, yeah. Yeah. Well, I think consciousness is a hard one to quantify. So I wouldn't want to say there's a limit on that. Um, however, what I do know just as a scientist is that as you practice mindfulness, even after just eight weeks, you see changes in brain activity, but also in brain structure. And so what I know is that this practice and many other practices can shift many, many parts of us, including our perception, including our ability to sense our emotions, including our you know, capacity to look for the good instead of being caught in what's called the negativity bias, where we tend to look for, you know, the the scary things in the world to protect ourselves. And so what one of the phrases that I love is what you practice grows stronger. And we know this now with neuroplasticity, our repeated thoughts, behaviors, emotions, they shape our brain. And what this means is we can shape the brain for the negative, and we can also shape it for the good. And mindfulness is one of these practices that we've seen can start to literally re-architect the very structure of your brain for greater joy, for greater clarity, and for greater calm. You know, Sean, I, I was wondering if you can talk about, um, and thank you for that. I've, I'm just thinking uh, a lot about what you're saying. I, I'm trying to also get a sense from you um, in your experience over the couple decades that you've been in this field, why people are so disconnected from their mindful nature and whether you've seen this trend get better, um, 
maybe with quarantine or, or worse, what have you <laughs> been kind of seeing? Yeah. Over the last year or so. Yeah. Well, I love that you brought up this, this mindful nature. And, and for those of you listening, I think what you're referring to is, is this, this kind of innocent, um, beautiful awareness that we're all born with, that awareness or consciousness isn't something you have to go out and manufacture. It's always already here. And it's really more of an uncovering process that we're uncovering it for all the noise. We're starting to remove all the noise, all the distractions, all the thoughts, all the the fear and worry about the future, all the regrets of our past. And we come into the present moment and all of a sudden it's right here and it's always been here. And so part of these practices is about finding our good hearts about uncovering this this wholesomeness and this wisdom that is always already here and i think the pandemic has gone in both ways i think for some people it has been a time of greater reflection and greater awakening to what's really important right for many of us we've we've realized at least for me i'll speak for myself that I was working too much. I was traveling too much. I wasn't spending enough time with our children. And we have spent lots of time with the, with the children now. And, um, and there's been a reprioritization that I believe and trust will continue. I think for, for many people that there, this has been a time of kind of going into extreme fear and separation and that, whatever we're practicing is growing stronger. So I think we have to be very intentional and conscious. I don't think crisis necessarily leads to negative outcomes, but I also don't think it necessarily leads to positive outcomes. I think it all depends on how you relate to it and how intentional you are about what you what you practice. Yeah, I've heard that from a lot of guests, actually, those who have been traveling a lot and on the road during quarantine that, um, I think this reprioritization of life has been a, a constant theme over the last year. And I think for some, you know, that has gotten better. Um, they've seen better results with their families. And then for others, I think maybe for folks who don't have tools or maybe don't believe in this space of consciousness, um, I think it's been more just difficult to manage the physical world without, um, you know, the tools and frameworks to understand mindfulness and meditation. So I've, I have just personally seen those two camps and that's also been a popular theme just on the show too. So that's interesting. Mm-hmm. And Shauna, you have, a self-kindness morning meditation. And I loved listening to your TED talk and I loved learning about this specific morning meditation. I was wondering if you could share this meditation, this practice with your, um, with our guests and maybe you could just tell us about it. Absolutely. So it's actually the reason that my new book is called Good Morning, I Love You. Um, as a scientist, the publishers were like, you can't name it. Good morning. I love you. It's uh, it sounds too soft and you know, you're a scientist and we have to market that direction. And so in, in actually in the UK, it came out as rewire your mind because good morning. I love you. Doesn't translate into British. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm 
I'm teasing, but, <laughs> but it did, it did get published on a different name because it is kind of a soft name. And I want to explain why this practice is so valuable because it truly is the most powerful practice I have ever learned. And it came at one of the darkest times in my life. I was going through a very painful divorce and our son was only three years old. So I was devastated at how it would impact his life. And I remember just having a tremendous amount of self-judgment and shame of this, why couldn't I make it work? What's wrong with me? And my meditation teacher saw how I was judging myself and she suggested a practice of self-kindness. She said, I want you to say, I love you, Shauna, every day. And I was like, no way. (laughs) That sounds so ridiculous and inauthentic. And she saw my hesitation. She said, how about just saying good morning, Shauna? When you wake up, put your hand on your heart. It releases oxytocin. You know, it's good for you. It's a, it's the love hormone. She knew the science would win me over. So I woke up the next morning and I took a breath and I put my hand on my heart and I said, good morning, Shauna. And it was kind of nice. Instead of the avalanche of shame and self-judgment, I just greeted myself with kindness. And as I continued to practice over the days and weeks, I started noticing subtle shifts, you know, a bit less self-judgment, a flash of kindness. And as I continued to practice, I realized that this was a true practice of mindfulness, that I was bringing my own kindness and my own presence to myself. Um, And then one day, it was my birthday, and I was alone. It was the first time I'd been away from my son and my husband for my birthday. And I woke up, and I put my hand on my heart to do my regular morning practice. And all of a sudden, this image of my grandmother appeared, and I felt her love. And it was as if the dam around my heart burst, and this love started pouring in. And before I knew it, I said, good morning. I love you, Shauna. And, you know, I wish I could say that every day since then has been this bubble of self-love and I've never felt judgment again. And that's not true. But what is true is this pathway of kindness toward myself was established and it grows stronger every day with, with practice. And so I decided to write the book, including all the science, of course, behind it, but with this practice at the forefront um, to really help people develop this relationship with themselves. That as I worked as a clinical psychologist with many different people, women with breast cancer and stressed out college students and high-level executives, I was shocked by the fact that everyone was always talking about the same thing this tremendous self-judgment, this sense of I'm not good enough, I'm not doing it right. And so I started studying shame. And what I discovered is that when we shame and judge and beat ourselves up, we shut down the learning centers of the brain. We literally rob ourselves of the resources we need to do the work of changing. So if I want to be more patient as a mother, and then I snap at my son, and then I beat myself up for it, I literally am paralyzing myself and keeping myself stuck and repeating those same behaviors. And so this practice, what I've seen is that not only am I 
strengthening and cultivating kindness for myself, I'm increasing this resource so that I can offer it more fully to the world. That's so beautiful. It's so touching and moving to hear you talk about that. And I think it's going to be really powerful for a lot of people to wake up with that phrase. Uh, I am actually going to try that going forward. I think I've tried it a couple times, um, but you know, it's, it's difficult. I think for a lot of us, when we wake up in the morning, like you said, I think we just go into our, what happened yesterday? What do we have going on for the day? Here's another reason why it's so important. So you're right. You wake up in the morning and you're on automatic pilot and you're like, what do I have to do? Or you jump out of bed or you lie in bed worrying about all the things you have to do. And the morning, what research shows is this is the most precious time of day that your mood in the morning predicts your longevity and health. It it actually predicts the length of your telomeres and the health of your mitochondria. So we need to protect our mood in the morning. And so instead of jumping on the news or social media, to take a few moments to greet yourself with kindness, to feel your body, it has exponentially beneficial effects. Wow. And Shauna, can you actually talk to us about your morning ritual? So you say this phrase and then how do you set up your morning? (laughs) So before I get out of bed is when I do the good morning, I love you practice. So whenever my, you know, my consciousness awakens, I immediately will just put my hand on my heart and just take a breath and feel that connection. In fact, you might want to try it with me, everyone who's listening, just first placing your hand on your heart and just feel that gesture of self-care. And for some people, this is enough. This is quite intense to just feel your own kindness and to see if you can let it in 5% more. This isn't about doing it perfectly. It's not about all of a sudden having this overwhelming self-love. It's just, oh, sweetheart, I'm here. And then I'll usually silently, I don't say it out loud. I'll just say, good morning. I love you. And then I'll just wait for whatever comes. And some mornings, nothing does. Some mornings I feel really raw and tender and alone. And some mornings I'm just flooded with this love that is so much bigger than me. And then usually what I'll do is I'll start sending it out. So I'll send it to our children and I'll send it to my husband and I'll send it to the dog and then whoever comes to my mind, and eventually I send it out to all beings everywhere, wishing that all beings are peaceful and free and filled with love. And, you know, I remember at one point I realized I was leaving certain people out, like my ex-husband. <laughs> and and so even tried kind of bringing him in, like, good morning, I love you, may you be well. And I think, you know, what I've recognized is, It's this beautiful practice that purifies the heart, that when the heart is holding on to anger or resentment, that it helps to purify that. And it doesn't mean that we, you know, there's this beautiful quote from Sharon Salzberg. She says, compassion doesn't mean we do not fight. It means we do not hate. And there's a way in which this practice helped free my heart from hating myself and hating others. And it, the way that it's rippled out in the world has really astounded me. I mean, now more than two plus million people have learned this practice. I receive letters 
of people saying how it's transformed their lives. And um, it's, you know, astounding because it was such a small personal practice, um, but I have faith in it. Wow. And for those listening, we invite you to start your day with this practice. I'm going to do it tomorrow and Shauna, I'll let you know how it goes and yes. how, how I'm feeling. I think it's so powerful. I'm already intuitively, you know, feeling the the warmth and the the love and the compassion coming from that exercise. And it's so simple. I mean, it, it doesn't take much time. I think everyone can do it in the world. It's not a you know, doesn't take hours. Um, so thank you. Thank you so much for that. Mm. Shauna, so you wrote the book, um, Good Morning, I Love You, uh, Mindfulness and Self-Compassion Practices to Rewire Your Brain for Calm, Clarity, and Joy. And we spoke a little bit about the kind of reason for writing the book. You also spoke about um, how the, there's a lot of different scientific um, stories that uh maybe help provide some answers to what happens in our mind, what happens in our brain when we decide to create a mindfulness practice. I'm wondering if you could share maybe one or two stats or reference points that the audience might be interested in um, from the book, uh, maybe the key message that that comes from the the book. Absolutely. Well, first of all, I am a bit of a skeptic myself. And so for me, science was my doorway in that I, you know, especially with the self-kindness that the, there was a part of me that was like, well, wait a minute, if I'm kind to myself, then I'm never going to change. I'm never going to, you know, these, these bad habits or these parts of myself that really need to change. I'll just let myself off the hook. So the science really helped me because the data on self-compassion is quite powerful. And what it shows is, you know, people who are trying to exercise more, if you randomly assign them to two groups and one you put in standard exercise and the other you put into exercise plus self-compassion, where they learn how to be kind to themselves and not beat themselves up, they actually exercise more and get healthier, not the opposite. Or if someone's trying to lose weight and stick to a diet, self-compassion is more effective. And so what I realized as a scientist was this works and that's quite compelling. You know, if beating yourself up worked, I would say, go ahead and do it, but it doesn't work. It, it shuts down the learning centers of the brain. It keeps you stuck. So part of the reason I wrote the book is to bring the science to people in a simple way that says, Hey, look, you know, a couple things. One, it's never too late to change. You're never too old. You've never made too big a mistake. No matter what's happened to you, all of us have the capacity to rewire our brain. This is the fundamental law of neuroplasticity. So let's learn some practices to go about and do it, right? Whatever you practice grows stronger. So you choose in the book, we talk a lot about what do you want to grow? What are areas of your life? Do you want more joy? Then there's a whole chapter focusing on how do you cultivate happiness? And why is it so challenging? Why is happiness elusive? And what is our negativity bias? And how do we overcome it? So the the book is kind of filled with the science and then usually a story and then a practice that will help you literally re-architect your mind for greater joy and greater calm. And my goal was to make it accessible to everyone. I, I remember when I was working on my TED Talk, I, I had my 12-year-old son listen to it like 
15 times. And I said, if there's any part in here that does not make you excited, that you kind of space out or you're bored, just tell me. And I just kept cutting and cutting and cutting until he was like, yeah, I get it. It makes sense. Poor kid. Um, (laughs) But but what what I've learned as a scientist is that people they remember stories. They remember simplicity. They, you know, our life is already so complex. And so the goal of the book was to make it a joyful, very experiential um, process while without leaving out any of the science. Amazing. And for folks uh, who want to listen to the book, you can also get it on Audible and we'll leave it in the show notes so that you guys can find the link to Amazon. Uh, it's available on a number of different um, publisher sites. I did read it myself and there's many practices where it's kind of nice to get guided through them instead of have to read them. So what I've heard from people is they're enjoying doing the Audible, but then a lot of them say that they really wanted to underline stuff. So they got the book too. So <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I'm an underline. I need to have something physical. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. I, I checked out, uh, the audible and you've got like 600 five-star reviews. So <laughs> clearly, you know, people are loving, uh, the audible version as well as the, the, the actual physical version. Um, awesome Shauna. So I'm curious, you've obviously spent a lot of time in the data in this subject and field. What's the most surprising research that you've come across, uh, with respect to mindfulness and compassion? Well, a a couple things. I mean, I initially was actually quite surprised that being compassionate to yourself was so effective. Um, I didn't expect that. I, you know, grew up pushing myself pretty hard and it seemed to work. So it was counterintuitive to me that if I was kind to myself, I just thought everything would fall apart. Um, But it doesn't. And what's so fascinating is there's something called the happiness advantage. And when your brain is positive in a positive state versus neutral, negative, or stressed, um, you actually, your intellect goes up, your creativity goes up, your energy levels go up. And so when you're in a positive state, you're actually like kind of Superman or Superwoman, you know, you, you, you have this advantage. And so what I realized is I'm with myself 24 hours a day if I'm on my own team, if I'm cheerleading, if I'm being kind to myself, I'm always supporting myself to have that happiness advantage, to have that positive state of mind. Now, this doesn't mean that you have to be happy all the time. Um, It's not about faking it or papering over what you feel. The real power and beauty of mindfulness is that it welcomes whatever you're feeling. That's that's really, you know, the difference between self-compassion and self-esteem is that self-compassion, it is it is with you no matter what. It's like, sweetheart, you, you succeeded, yes, or, oh, sweetheart, you failed, I'm here. Whereas self-esteem is a fair-weather friend. And, you know, it's great when things are going well, but it deserts you when, when you hit up against challenges. And so what I found is being on my own team, while it's kind of awkward and strange at first, it's this incredible ally and support. And Shauna, I would love to also dive into your journey and where you learned your philosophy from. I started reading the book, um, Good Morning, I Love You, and I learned a lot about your early journey uh, with scoliosis and then obviously up until the present moment. So I'm wondering if you could share where you learned your philosophy from and just tell us about your personal journey. 
Yeah. Well, it was at a very unexpected time in my life. I was 17. I was a normal rascally teenager. Um, and I, I was, my life was volleyball. I had just signed to play at Duke university to play volleyball in college. When I, um, found out that I had to have, um, emergency spinal fusion surgery because my scoliosis had gotten worse and it, my spine was going to puncture my lungs. So, um, within a matter of weeks, I went from this healthy, active teenage volleyball star to lying in a hospital bed, unable to walk. And it was during the many months of rehabilitation, I was in a hospital bed for about six months, that my father introduced me to mindfulness to kind of help cope with my physical pain and and also my emotional pain. I was feeling a lot of anxiety at that time and scared that my whole life was over. And it was one of it was one of those moments in life where he gave me a book. I read the first line in the book. I remember to this day, it says, no matter what has happened to you, it has already happened. The only question is, now what? And it was like, oh my gosh, I, I can be happy again. Like I have some choice here. Like I'm, my life's not over. And as I continued to read about mindfulness and about the practice and to to start implementing it in my life, I started to experience these shifts of, you know, not being so contracted around my pain. So the pain was still there, but I wasn't afraid of it the way I was, or I wasn't angry as, as much. And when I eventually healed, um, some years later, I went to Thailand and Nepal to study at the monasteries there to really really dive deep into this practice. And while I was there, I had such a powerful experience where for the first time in years, like in three years since my surgery, I wasn't in pain. And it really seemed like a, like one of those miracle healings. And I <laughs> came home and I said, I, I have to study this. Like I have to go to the most rigorous scientific universities and get my PhD and figure out what just happened because that was crazy. And, um, so that was really, that was the start of my career. And when I was getting my PhD, of course, everyone said, don't do this. Don't study meditation. It's weird. (laughs) And it's out there. And, you know, you have this promising career. And I, I, I just, I was so compelled by love and curiosity and it's really guided me these last 25 years. Wow. We need more people to study this space. And I'm so grateful that you have, because there's so many great resources that you've provided. I mean, you've also published over 150 journal articles and what a contribution that is to this space and this world. Because I think, you know, I sit in between two worlds right now. I sit in tech uh, and I also sit in, you know, kind of the spiritual um, meditation world as well as film. And it's, it's kind of interesting just to see how these worlds rarely have a bridge Um, and so I think that we need more bridge builders in this space who are looking at the science, who are looking, um, you know, looking at the research and then others who are, are, are doing more of the intuitive work because I, you know, we don't have a translator right now or or there, there are very few translators. So I really applaud you for doing this kind of work. I think it's incredibly important. Mm, I agree. Shauna, what are some books or resources that have inspired you on this path uh, besides your own books that you've written? <laughs> <laughs> um, 
I have many. I have been so fortunate to have extraordinary teachers. Um, that first book that I mentioned when I was 17 is Wherever You Go, There You Are by John Kabat-Zinn. And he was one of my very first teachers. In fact, I wrote him a letter after reading his book. I was, you know, when you're a teenager, you just think the world revolves around you. And I said, gosh, that was so great. And I'd love to come study with you. <laughs> and he being so extraordinary, wrote me back and said, come, come to Massachusetts, come to the medical center. And so I ended up doing my first internship some years later with him, um, which really started me on my path. So that book forever changed me. I love all of Jack Cornfield's books. He has been another incredible mentor in my life and um, highly recommend. And then Sharon Salzberg's book on loving kindness. I don't understand what it is. In fact, I'm going to have to do a research study on it. But I will tell you, as a university professor, I have that book in one of my classes. And for the last decade that I've been using it, Every time we read that book, it's about halfway through the semester, all of a sudden the students get really kind. They are <laughs> kind to each other. They're engaged. They're writing me little sweet notes of how much this is changing their life. And I'm telling you, it's her book. I There's no other, there's no other single factor. So I always recommend that book um, just because I've seen it, seen it transform people. Wow. Sharon Salzberg is amazing. I, I read her book, uh, Real Love. And, you know, it's funny, I actually met her in person and didn't realize that she was this like prolific figure in the world of love and, and compassion. So it was just so interesting to read her book and um, learn so much about compassion and kindness and loving kindness is kind of her her philosophy. Yeah. yeah. So Shauna, what do you want to tell our listeners about health and wellness? What's your main takeaway? Mm. My main takeaway, as I said before, and I'll say it again because it's so important, is that it's never too late. That science proves that no matter what has happened to you, no matter what mistakes you've made, no matter what your current life is like, it's never too late to change. That we have this extraordinary, magical capacity to change the structure of our brain and to carve pathways of kindness, of compassion, of creativity, of connection. And it just takes practice. Amazing. So I want to encourage everyone to, to choose something, even if it's just 5%, 5% more kindness toward yourself or 5% more playfulness or whatever it is. That That's what I found has been for me the biggest guide in supporting me to change is that I don't have to do it all at once. It's not about being perfect. It's about practice. And even 5% changes lead to huge outcomes. Amazing. So wonderful. And Shauna, are there any resources you can point folks to in order to learn more about you, website? And we'll also leave this all in the show notes. Absolutely. So drshaunashapiro.com is my website. There are free meditations and videos and articles there. Um, and you could also follow me on Instagram. I post there quite a bit at Dr. Shauna Shapiro. Amazing. Thank you so much for your time, Shauna. This was incredible. And I'm excited to start tomorrow morning with good morning. I love you, Yasmin. <laughs> it's going to be great. I love it. You have to follow <laughs> up with how it goes. <laughs> I will. Definitely. Definitely. 
And for our audience, thanks for joining and for listening. In this episode, we learned how to cultivate a compassionate and mindful life with Dr. Shauna Shapiro. And you can tune in to Gateways to Awakening, where we host one-on-one conversations with leading experts in wellness and spirituality. Thanks again.